the core cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is the family-friendly Shmup-themed podcast that doesn't stink, even though we like to go pew-pew-pew. From RFGeneration.com, I am Metal Fro, known in other parts of the interwebs as the Game Boy Guru, and with me I have... Addicted. Thank you for being with me, sir. Thank you for having me. All right, so RF Generation is the website that we work with and where this playthrough takes place. Uh, the Shmup Club started in June of 2018, and like our existing uh, playcast or playthrough that we have every month, we pick a shoot 'em up, and people will sign up and say they want to participate. We'll talk about the game, play through it through the course of the month, share scores, strategies, etc. And uh, it's just a fun thing that we like to do. And so this podcast will be uh, just a vehicle for us to discuss the game a little bit more at length, shout out the participants, talk about scores, strategies, talk about the game some more, and really just dive into it. Again, rfgeneration.com. If you're not a member, go and sign up. It's free. You can get on the forums, and you can uh, participate in the playthrough, participate in the Shmup Club, and... uh, converse throughout the threads. We also have a Discord that uh, is become quite active and has a lot of members every day that talk about games and all sorts of stuff. So make sure you check that out. So most of you listening to this podcast probably clicked it because you saw the word shmup somewhere in the description and you know what a shmup is. But for those that don't, uh, shmup is a portmanteau of shoot 'em up. And so we're talking scrolling shoot 'em up games, uh, things like R Type, which we're talking about today, uh, Gradius, or newer um, Dan Maku or Bullet Hell style games like Dodampachi or um, Ikaruga, or something like um, like a classic Raiden type of shooter. Uh, that's what we call a shmup. Um, in Japan, they're often known as STGs or shooting games. Um, if you say shooter here in North America, of course, a lot of people tend to think that you're talking about a first-person shooter like Doom or Quake or Wolfenstein. And so shmup is kind of a nice way for some of us to just sort of distinguish between the kind of shooting games that we're playing and Call of Duty. <laughs> so anyway, as I mentioned... We are talking about R-Type today. That was the inaugural game for the Shmup Club that we started June 2018. And um, we play multiple versions of the game. Uh, before we get into that, Addicted, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of backstory about the game itself. All right. In R-Type, you pilot the R-9 Fighter, also known as the Ray-9 Fighter, where you get to take on the Evo Bado Empire. 
the Bidot are biological weapons that were initially created to help humankind in the 26th century, but were lost in the wormhole. And they traveled back in time and they decided they've had enough and they're going to attack humanity in the 22nd century. So it's a great excuse to blow some stuff up. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, let's shout out the participants from June 2018 here that played R-Type along with us. We've got myself, of course, um, Addicted, of course. We also have Single Banana, Pam, Duke Togo, Slacker, Voodoo Monkey, Despache, Nefarious Wes, Dougley007, Davy K, Mighty Q Dog, Zagnorch, Square Air, and D Rock. So, a lot of participants for the first month, uh, which I was really happy to see. And there are quite a few versions of the game. Uh, a lot of ports for this game after the arcade original, of course, in 1987. And then over the next, I would say, decade, there were quite a few ports uh, to various consoles. For me, I played the original Game Boy version. I played a little bit of the Game Boy Color version, which is basically the Game Boy version um, colorized later by the same studio and tweaked ever so slightly. I also played R-Types on the PlayStation, which is just a compilation of R-Type 1 and 2, uh, and it's just an arcade port. And then R-Type Dimensions on PlayStation 3, which is uh, kind of an HD remake, if you will, of R-Type 1 and 2. And it gives you a lot of options, like uh, uh, the ability to choose between original graphics and sound and an updated graphics and sound and widescreen and all these different things. Uh, what versions did you play? I ended up having a chance to play the SMS version, which was really quite well done for the limitations of the hardware. I was really impressed by it. had a chance to try the PC Engine version, which was split onto two Hue cards. There's uh, one through four on the first one, and uh, see, there, I believe there's eight stages off of the top of my head. Five through eight on the second Hue card. Had a chance to play the TurboGrafx-16 version, which was <clears throat> both of the Hue cards and combined onto one. The PC Engine CD version, which has Red Book audio or basically st CD streaming audio. <clears throat> and I had a chance to try the PlayStation version. And I had a chance to try just a little bit of the main version. All the ports were really well done, and you can't go wrong no matter what version of the game you play in this. Yeah, and you know, I, I guess we can get into uh, some of the some of the stuff with the ports here. Um, obviously, the the Game Boy port is going to be one of the more limited versions of the game. You know, you mentioned the SMS port was quite good uh, based on the hardware limitations. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a secret level or a secret stage within that game. Um, yes, that's correct. Yeah, it's in stage four. You have there's an opening. I think on the top you have to go in and go to the left. I unfortunately missed that in my playthrough, but I'm hoping, hoping to go back and rectify that. Very cool. Yeah, the Game Boy version and by uh, proxy the Game Boy Color version only has six of the eight stages. Stages 4 and 5 from the original arcade version were omitted. I would say to anyone who's played the game for obvious reasons, uh, Stage 4 has a number of enemies that fly onto the screen and leave trails of these 
obstacle pieces that you have to shoot through or destroy with the, the force bit from the, the ship, and that would have been far too many um, sprites or items on screen for the Game Boy to render in real time to probably do that. Similarly, Stage 5 from the original, where you have these giant kind of biomechanical snakes that fly around, <clears throat> excuse me, and if you destroy the head of one of those snakes, the rest of the snake's body will kind of explode outward in kind of a radiating pattern. And so, again, you're talking about multiple um, multiple segmented pieces flying out in d all different directions, and it probably would have been too much for the, the hardware to handle, especially when you think about, I want to say, the snake in level 2 that is uh, indestructible, but you can damage its body segments, has, I think, eight segments to it. Uh, but in the Game Boy port, it only has four of those segments. And so obviously, not only with the limitations of the Game Boy's sprites, but also then the kind of lower resolution of the Game Boy screen, you know, you just can't fit all of that on there at once. Makes sense, yeah, especially with something. Something like the Game Boy on there, you, you, with the, that one, I, the snake also will, uh, goes inside and outside of a sort of like a pulsating heart or some sort of organ on there, and that would be really hard to get put all those animations at once for the Game Boy. Right. Since you played both the PC Engine, Turbo Graphics, and PC Engine CD versions, uh, did you notice any major differences between those games uh, outside of course of the you know the streaming audio and anime intro from the CD version were there any specific changes or differences that you noticed between those the only changes that I noticed aside from the anime intros and the um, streaming iOS was the PC engine CD version was a lot easier it gave you unlimited continues while the cue card versions the turbo graphics 16 slash PCE gave you, I think it was three continues, and that was it. Oh, interesting. So, de yeah, so for novices, the the PC Engine CD version might be one way to go, um, you know, as far as getting a console version so that you can have a little bit more time to practice. How do you think those versions compared to the PlayStation port on R-Types compilation? Honestly, look at, uh, with the ports on there, the graphics were pared down just a little bit, but it was very serviceable. I'm, if you went from the arcade and you came home thinking this is gonna, this is as close as I'm gonna get to the arcade, you, you would have left feeling like you made with a good feeling for your purchase. Definitely serviceable. The enemies were bright and colorful. All of the illustrations and majority of the animations came through. As it mentioned with the snake in the Game Boy Color version, it had all of its essential parts, and it was shooting out. She would shoot out from each one of those at you, trying to hold a view. The heart was pulsating as the snake went in and out. Not nothing looked pared down or looked like oh, looked like it's missing a pair of animation here or keyframe there. Very cool. Uh, what about the music? Uh, I'm curious about. I mean, I know that the I know the soundtrack on the PC Engine version is its own thing um, compared to the hue card versions, which are essentially just chiptune representations of the arcade music. 
How do you think the chiptune versions compared to the arcade? I love the chiptune versions on there. I mean, my favorite version out of that was definitely the PlayStation version. I, I, I def, put in second would definitely be the PC Engine TurboGrafx-16 version. The ones I didn't really care for too much were the PC Engine CD version on that. There's, there's a part in the beginning when you're playing through and you know when it starts speeding up, the tempo speeds up and starts getting you into mood. You're like, I'm going to get ready. Let's go shoot some things. It just starts saying R-Type. It's almost like a dance mix or a trance mix. It's very, very different and doesn't really fit the mood very well. Interesting. I, I wonder, I don't know when the, I'd have to go back and look and see when the the PC Engine CD version was released in relation to uh, R-Type Leo, which is the third proper arcade game in the series and kind of a black sheep because it was developed by an outside studio. It wasn't done by the same IREM team uh, directly. But um, if you haven't played R-Type Leo, it's a much different beast. It does not use the, the force bit mechanic or the force pod. And it also has a very kind of house dance music type soundtrack to it. Very different from the slightly more ominous uh, music and <clears throat> and uh, soundtrack from the first game or even really the first two games but kind of signaled the direction that the, the music would go in the series later with Delta and R-Type Final. So it's kind of interesting that the, the PC Engine CD version used more of a of a dance music type of vibe. It's, it's almost more like a, a remix. It might be a little bit more of a better term for it. It's it's sort of like going with, you're listening to Castlevania and you know the chiptune version by heart and all of a sudden you hear the orchestral version. You're like, that's nice, but I really love the chiptune version. Oh, sure. Something akin to that. The other thing I want to touch upon real quick is that we've been talking about the orb that's always falling around, similar to an option in Gradius. And do you want to give a little bit of backstory on what exactly that is for people who haven't played this? Yeah, the the primary mechanic, the game's big hook, is what's called the force pod or the force bit. Uh, it's referred to that way or in both um, in both ways, I guess you could say. But According to the, the game's story, which you were mentioning earlier, essentially the force bit is this sort of indestructible piece of equipment that is constructed of some flesh of the Bido themselves um, that is encased within this, um, this force pod or this bit. And that is used as a number of things. A, it's what helps your ship to power up. And so when you collect a power-up icon within the game, the first thing that you do is you get the force bit, and it kind of flies in from the left side of the screen, and it can attach to either the front or the rear of the R9. And when it's attached to the ship and you collect additional power-ups, you will get one of three different weapon types. The red weapon type, yeah, the, the, the red weapon type is what's called the helix laser, looks like a, a kind of a helix pattern from a DNA strain or whatever. It's a blue and red lasers that kind of sine wave opposite one another. 
There's the blue weapon, which is an angled laser, and so it shoots out from at a 45-degree angle up and beneath the R9, kind of out front, angled down, and then also it shoots a third laser straight out from the ship. So it provides quite a bit of firepower coming out. And then the third weapon type, which is a yellow pickup, is sort of this wall-crawling flamethrower laser thing that you pick up in a couple of the different stages that weapon is available. And uh, I'd like to get into that a little bit more later in terms of, of weapon power-ups and, and um, you know, appropriate use of those. But those are the three basic weapons. So once you have your force bit, then you can power up that force bit twice. Once by your initial pickup of whichever power-up you're going to use, uh, that will give you a base level of that weapon. Um, so for example, the red power-up I mentioned, the helix laser, when you power it up first, it's not a helix, it's just red and blue uh, little blasts that come out from the force pod. It's only when you power that up the second time that you then get the full helix laser effect. Uh, similarly, the angled laser, um, you get shorter laser bursts that come out, and then when you power it up the second time, uh, you'll notice that the pod looks bigger, like it's more powerful, and you have longer laser blasts um, that come out from the pod. And so that is when the pod is attached to your ship. And of course, if the pod is docked or attached to the front of the R9, that fire will go out from the front, uh, you know, basically from the, the direction that the pod is facing. If the pod is docked to the back of your ship, then that fire goes out to the back. And that's important in a number of areas where there are enemies that will be coming from behind, uh, particularly in stage three, which is the battleship. There is actually a section toward the end of the battleship where you'll have to fly up behind it and, you know, take out some cannons on kind of the, I guess what you would say is the backside of this battleship. And so th that becomes necessary to dock the force pod on the back of your ship so that you can go up and take out these, these turrets. I would say so even with, especially at the end of stage four there, as you're going through, you need to make sure that you covered your behind and covered your, your front. I always put the force pod at the back and have it keep shooting as that way I'm shooting forward and can take out any enemies. It's also, and we'll cover this a little bit later, but it gives me a lot of leeway for the boss of stage four. I know that you had mentioned in within stage three when you're dealing with the, get to the very front of that battleship and you're trying to take out the front guns, there's no way to do it except to navigate the force pod to behind you and start firing away. Force pod mastery is something that is absolutely required in order to get through this game. Yes. The other thing I was going to mention about the force pod, too, is when when the force pod is powered up, your ship always has kind of a primary cannon that it will shoot. So even when you've got the force pod docked and you have your force pod power-up that you've chosen, red, blue, or yellow, you're still always firing that primary cannon. And so you've got multiple weapon systems kind of in working in conjunction with one another. When you when your pod is fully powered up and you undock it 
if you're tapping the fire button, the pod will shoot out additional just standard shots like your R9 cannon is. And so, for example, if, you're, if your pod is powered up fully with two power-up icons of the same type, it will shoot out kind of a spread where it will shoot vertically up and down from the pod and then also out at not quite a 45-degree angle, maybe more like a 30-degree angle upward and downward from the force pod. So while it's kind of free-floating in the air, undocked from your ship, it will also continue to fire. And there are situations where that comes in handy, particularly the Stage 4 boss that you were mentioning. Um, I found that to be quite useful. Uh, same with the Stage 5 boss, uh, the big sort of satellite thing with the cluster of brain cells or whatever it is. Um, you know, having the force pod undocked and kind of shooting away can be helpful for that um, for that boss encounter. In, yeah, in the, it, sorry, oh, go ahead. Just, the uh, force pod, one of the best ways to think about with the force pod is anyone who's played uh, Gradius could think of it as, as a almost always on option or an e in or it's always going to be following you around, but you have control of it or a controllable option. <laughs> a lot of it, its usefulness is going to vary depending upon your play style. But there's a lot of area. It really opens up some of the gameplay and how you're going to be tackling stuff, especially when as it starts. You can get through the first two stages pretty well without having to deal with anything with the force wall by just shooting straight ahead. But once you get past that second stage and you get to the battleship, that's going to be a stumbling block if you're not fully equipped with the orb or with this pod. Yeah, and the other the other thing that I mentioned earlier that I'd like to, I guess, touch on just briefly is, as I mentioned before, the force pod is indestructible, so it can also act as both a shield and a weapon. So... You mentioned in stage four having the the force pod docked on the the backside of the R9 for taking on kind of the end of the level because of all the enemies coming in from behind. The force pod will absorb some enemy bullets, so the little orange bullets that it that most enemies will fire at you. The R the force pod will uh, absorb those. Also, it will damage enemies if it touches them. So if you are near an enemy and the force pod is docked on the ship and you're kind of grazing that enemy with the force pod, the whole time it's going to be damaging that. Or there's a one of the buttons that you use is to release the force pod, which will throw it forward or throw it behind. And you can essentially use it as a projectile. And then if you press the button again, you call the force pod back to you and so you can use that as a very effective projectile weapon, essentially, over and above your regular cannons. So when you combine the, the R9 cannon that's built in, plus the force pod and its upgrades, plus its ability to um, become a projectile, you've got a lot of options there. Plus... The charge shot, which we haven't talked about, if you press and hold the fire button, you charge up a powerful blast, and when you let it charge all the way, and then let go, it shoots out a, a large, powerful blast that does much more damage. And so larger enemies or boss encounters, a lot of times, charge shots will help to take them out much faster. There's also 
missiles that you can pick up, which will kind of auto-fire at a, a set rate from the R9. And then there are there are what's called a shield bit uh, that you can pick up, and you can pick up up to two of these. Um, it's another power-up that when you pick one up, it, it kind of hovers over the top of your ship, and it will protect you, similar to the force pod, um, from basic enemy bullets, and it will damage enemies in a similar fashion. And if you are lucky enough or good enough at the game to survive long enough to pick up a second one, then that will hover beneath your ship. And each of those shield bits will also fire out a standard cannon uh, shot as well, just like the R9's built-in cannon. So you can amass quite an arsenal as you go throughout the game. One of the things that I really liked about R-Type versus uh, more its contemporaries, such as Gradius, that came out a couple years earlier, is if you do die in here, you don't feel like you're going back against a very steep uphill battle. I found it a little bit, or in fact, a lot easier to be able to get going again, gain that momentum back, and start fighting the Bidal Empire again versus something or Gradius or you're a god and then all of a sudden you get one hit and now you're back to basically firing pea shooters at people. Yeah. One of the things in uh, in comparing Gradius and R-Type is A, R-Type, the R9 is faster by default than Gra the, Gra the Vic Viper and Gradius. And so even though there are speed-ups in R-Type and it is uh, a good idea to pick up one or two, you don't feel as though you're swimming in molasses, so to speak, with the R9 from the default. And also, the, the checkpoints in the game are structured in such a way that you will have access to one or two power-ups available to you from the start of that checkpoint until whatever the next checkpoint is, which is usually, a, I want to say there's one to two checkpoints per stage, um, and so you'll, you'll always have access to at least one, if not two, power-ups before you reach the boss, if you happen to die mid-stage and uh, activate a checkpoint. And that's important because that way you're not getting to the boss encounter at the end of the level with, as you said, just a pea shooter. You, you feel like you have at least some means of defending yourself and, and taking on that boss encounter. Yeah, it does a really good job of giving you a fighting chance. And one of the other things that I want to bring up, a point that you had initially put up, is that it's in Gradius, it's open to be a little bit more, or sorry, Gradius, it's a little bit more open to individual playstyles. Do you go for the laser? Or do you go for this? In our type, it's pretty much a good idea to give what comes out in front of you. If you see a, a helix laser. <laughs> You're probably going to need it going forward. Speed is a little bit variable, but that's the general idea. Yeah, and th that was something that I talked about uh, during the the thread um, for the the playthrough. Is uh, the the game is designed in such a way that most of the weapon pickups, when they're offered to you, are what you should pick up at that time. There are a couple of potential red herrings through the game where I think it might not be advantageous to pick them up. For example, in stage two, there is at least one opportunity in the arcade version, and I'm assuming the 
uh, Turbo and SMS versions and, and other arcade ports where you can pick up the yellow um, sort of wall-crawling flame laser thing that I mentioned. That works to an extent for completing the level, but then later in the stage you're offered the opportunity to go for the blue power-up, the angled laser, and um, I would say that more than likely you want to pick that one up if you happen to grab the yellow one mid-stage. Same thing with um, stage 5. I know there's at least one spot in stage 5 where a yellow power-up is offered, and since stage 5 does not have a wall, or a, excuse me, a floor or a ceiling where that weapon can crawl, it's a bit of a red herring, and it's not one that I would recommend for that portion of the game. But otherwise, yeah, when, when you're offered a weapon, most of the time, uh, especially if you're kind of learning as you go, it's a good idea to pick up that weapon because it's going to provide you with some kind of tactical advantage as you're playing the game. The other thing that is interesting about that is there are people who have played the game using almost exclusively the Helix Laser. Uh, in the thread, I posted a playthrough by uh, a YouTuber named X Mosquito, and he does a Helix Laser playthrough where the only point in the game where he doesn't use the Helix Laser is at the beginning of Stage 3 for the battleship. He picks up the yellow weapon because that's what's offered, because you kind of need that in order to take out the different turrets and cannons and things that line the battleship. But once you're about halfway through that stage, you're offered the helix laser again, and that's where you would pick that back up and finish out the level with just the helix laser, and then play the rest of the game that way. Um, it's an interesting approach, and a lot of the more seasoned players of our type tend to pre tend to prefer that helix laser weapon rather than shuffling throughout the course of the game. And so it definitely adds a different strategic element. And of course, for players who have mastered the game, choosing one weapon and going through the whole game with that one weapon, regardless of which one it is, can be an additional challenge that they can take on. Speaking of additional challenges, uh, I'm not sure if we've covered this yet, but we want to cover the one CC challenge or one oh, credit clear. Yeah, absolutely. So it's my understanding that a one credit clear means that basically you start out with start the game with your initial or default set of lives, and after you you go through the entire game without getting a continue or getting a game over. I've seen people refer to it as no death runs. I'm not sure how much the differentiation uh, sorry differentiation is between one CC and a no death run. If some people. It, yeah so, that part the same. yeah, so a no-death run is literally just you play the game and you do not die the entire time. Um, whereas a 1cc is a bit more flexible because it allows you the ability to play through the game with the number of lives that you start the game with and also with any extends or extra lives that you earn throughout the game, whether that is additional lives earned via score or... Not in R-Type because they don't exist, but some shoot-em-ups actually have one-up icons that you can activate or or earn throughout the course of the game. 
uh, to, to earn extra lives or to earn extends. Uh, and so uh, in, in the case of R-Type, you have three R9 ships to start out with. And I don't remember what the criteria is for earning um, extra lives in R-Type um, right off the top of my head, but I know that as you play through the game and, and gain score, there is opportunity to earn uh, an extra life or two through the course of the game. So it's possible to get through and earn you know, a couple, three extra lives as you're playing. So even if you die once or twice, typically you know, you've earned enough extra lives that if you can recover and get back to a powered-up state to take on whatever the next boss or challenge is, you have the ability to do that. Now, with our type as with a lot of, of classic games like this or classic shoot-em-ups, there are actually two loops to the game. And so, when you play through and you beat the final boss on your first playthrough through the initial eight stages, you beat the game in a sense, but you didn't really beat it. They want you to go back and do it again on essentially a harder difficulty. And if you can play through and beat all eight stages a second time on that higher difficulty and beat the final boss, then that is truly the one credit clear. I was not good enough on any of the versions that I played to get a 1cc. In fact, I didn't even reach stage eight in uh, any of the versions or you know in either the PlayStation version or the PS3 R-Type Dimensions port. Uh, on the Game Boy version, I did get, well, I'll call it a 2cc. I continued once through that and I did do both loops on just two credits. So I felt pretty good about that. Um, but of course the Game Boy version is quite a bit easier than uh, any of the other more proper arcade ports. Well, I mean, that brings up a very good point. R-Type is definitely a hard game. It's one that requires memorization. You have to know what's coming beforehand, and that can really put off some people. I know that Dougley07 was having some problems with the battleship section, and that, for me, I, that was a big stumbling block and required just memorization, repetition, and getting the patterns down. Did you have some trouble spots? I definitely did. Coming into this playthrough, I have always struggled with Stage 3, the battleship. That's where I kind of always tagged out before because I always found difficulty memorizing the pattern of the area and um, especially once you kind of start going on the underside of the, the battleship you got those red lasers coming through and uh, firing at you, and that's where I would always kind of trip up. I always, and, and of course, as we mentioned before, with kind of taking the weapons as they were offered to you, I always preferred the blue laser, so I tried to avoid the yellow power-ups and just go through the battleship with that blue laser. That makes it quite a bit more challenging. So oh, if you, definitely. If you don't stick with the yellow weapon as you're learning the game, it makes it much more difficult because there's a lot more maneuvering that you have to do. And as you said, this is a memorization-heavy game. Pam mentioned that as well in the thread, that she is not a fan of games that you have to memorize in order to succeed, is kind of how she put it. And um, and yeah, R-Type is, is 
a memorizer for sure, especially with stage four, you really have to map out the path of where you're going to be. A lot of early shoot-em-ups, you could get by on uh, manual dexterity, twitch reflexes, and just kind of thinking on your feet. But with our type, you really have to plan ahead and, as you say, know what's coming so that you can... Um, so that you can really be prepared for, for where it is, what, what's coming, what enemies are coming, what obstacles might be in your way, and where you're going to maneuver the R9 so that you can be successful. And so that it really does uh, require a lot of, of repeat play and strategy, I guess you could say. One thing that I will say with R-Type is it's a lot more claustrophobic than most shooters you encounter. It really forces you into narrow passageways that really require you either to use Force Pod to help navigate or to learn some of the weapons such as the aforementioned yellow or homing weapon that goes again across the walls is really good for the beginning of Section 2 where they have all that stuff crawling. I don't know what those things are, but those uh, Geiger-esque... Con- enemies crawling out those where they're uh, missing their lower halves just crawling out and attacking you in those little metroids it's really good for something like that but it, it just feels like the walls are always closing in something's always closing in on you yeah since you mentioned uh, geiger ask that's a good segue to kind of go into talking about the graphics and the graphical style the the game is heavily influenced by uh, German artist H.R. Giger, and most of you listening will know of his work on the Alien and Aliens series of movies. Um, he's done a number of album covers over the years, quite notably uh, Brain Salad Surgery for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Uh, very, the, the sort of biomechanical vibe that our type is going for draws heavily from his designs, and indeed, the very first boss of the game, the Dob Caratops, as it's called, um, the big sort of ugly orange uh, alien, is I would say not a not a carbon copy, but very heavily inspired from his xenomorph designs that were used for the Alien films. Yeah, I would say that the first stage boss, whose name I don't have off the top of my head definitely is one of the more iconic bosses in all of gaming. You people as mentioned R-Type, and it's probably one of the first things that pops into people's heads, or even shoot-em-ups. Yeah. You'd probably say it's right up there along with recognizable stuff such as the Vic Viper, or some of the later enemies that you get from in there. The, the first stage boss within Gradius comes to mind as another one that's on there. I mean, did any of the other bosses strike you as much as that first level boss? Um, the stage two boss, of course, with, uh, you know, as sort of the big heart, it also kind of had a bit of a, a bit of a Giger vibe to it. Uh, it is, it is more biological than mechanical, but it kind of still gave off a little bit of that biomech vibe, especially because of the, the blue orb at the top center of the boss that you had to shoot. None of the other bosses gave me as much of that that vibe as the first two. I, I think as the game goes along, it starts to... I, I don't want to say shed the Giger influence, but certainly 
minimizes it to an extent. The, the first two stages really take that that sort of grotesque biomechanical um, concept and really run with it, especially stage two, because it almost looks like you're inside a mechanical creature. Um, Reminds me a lot of the last stage of Contra. Yeah, very much so. You know, so I don't know. You know, I don't know if the if the second stage is is somehow you're you're inside that first boss, or if it's just some you know heavy biomechanical area within somewhere within a Bido stronghold or whatever. But it's a really interesting stage, and I think is one of the more visually striking things within the game because you've got all of these almost test tube looking things with the the sort of red uh, intestines type of of stuff going on and then the background looks fleshy and then the ceiling and the floor look like it's all comprised of decaying dead bodies of alien creatures and and indeed the the stage two the alien creatures that kind of come out at an angle at you from the floor and the ceiling they look like they're not quite exoskeletal but like they're very primitive creatures um and sorry the best way that i would describe something like that those creatures would be like a torso the front torso or the top half of a, a zombie crawling towards somebody that's the type of impression I get when those enemies start attacking you in stage two. Yeah, that's a good description. The other thing that I really like about, I really noticed about this stuff is it doesn't, no matter what version is, and I mentioned this before, but no matter what version you're looking at here, everything is animated well. It's one of those things where you're looking, this is 8-bit graphics, 16-bit graphics, arcade graphics, it doesn't matter what it is. You look at this and you go, yeah, that's a little disgusting and repulsive. Yeah. You, you, you feel it moves you towards something, which is a lot better than you get in in something that, that it's not generic. It gives you a style. It gives you something that makes you want to like, okay, you know, do, am I sh- shooting these things and putting them out of their misery and ha- helping fire out? We don't want humanity to end up looking like this. It's... it's Definitely harkens back some designs that you get, some of the horde designs you get with, say, the original Alien or even Aliens. Right. Yeah, and and even on the Game Boy, I think the graphics are, are quite good. Stage 2 especially. You know, as I said, Stage 2 is probably the most visually striking level in the whole game. And they really did a good job of, of translating that to the low resolution and four shades of of green or gray on the Game Boy to really kind of still try and evoke that that uh, grotesque atmosphere because you still get those uh, sort of test tubes full of intestines and you still get the uh, the kind of zombie torso creatures uh, they're not as as obvious as to what they are but they still look creepy and they still are a pretty good representation of what the original enemies look like. Sorry, one of the things I want to mention real quickly is when you, about the difficulty that Spike, it really starts ramping up after stage three. When you're dealing with stage four, those patterns, everything starts becoming just a little bit faster than you. So you really, really have to know what's coming next. 
I'm not sure about you, but I found that the that the R9 was having difficult, especially with the way that those enemies would would come in at a curve at you. You just barely had any time to react. Is you wanted to make sure, and a speed up portion during that stage four was almost a necessity. Did you have uh, some difficulty with that? Yeah, stage four is where I hit a wall pretty quick. Um, you know, as I mentioned, coming into the playthrough, stage three is where I kind of capped out before, but playing it during the month of June, I struggled a lot with stage four because of all the the memorizing you have to do and kind of finding your, your pathway or your, your, uh, your way through the stage with all the obstacles and, and what you really have to do is either A, power up the ship and know what's coming when so that you can shoot down those those enemies that leave the trails before they can make the trails and that way you still have more uh, run of the screen to kind of move, maneuver around and take out other enemies and, and dodge enemy bullets. The other thing you need to do is make really frequent use of the charge shot and throwing and um, you know redocking the force pod on front and back of the ship in different places so that you can appropriately take out enemies and obstacles in your way. The charge shot will take out, a single full charge shot will take out one of those enemies that creates the trail behind it. So at the beginning of the stage, for example, if I die during stage four and I'm taken back to the beginning, I know that right away I can move my ship up to about the two-thirds up mark or so, three-fourths roughly, and use a charge shot to take out that first enemy that kind of arcs upward and down, and then quickly charge up a second one and take out the guy who's coming in a straight line further down the screen so that I can then quickly maneuver in and shoot down the enemy power-up ship so that I can grab a force pod uh, because you really need to have that um, with all the enemies that then come on screen shortly thereafter to make sure you've got at least some shield against the the bullets that are going to be coming in and then also have that as an offensive capability as well. You mentioned that you that you had a chance to play the HD version or oh forgive me what's the name what's the name of the HD version? Uh, it's R-Type Dimensions. Dimensions, thank you. On there, did you notice that the difficulty had been tweaked? Any changes on that version? Yes, uh, actually, that was the version that I found to be the easiest for a couple of reasons. Um, first and foremost, um, if you choose to play with the HD graphics, it takes advantage of the full 16 by 9 uh, screen size, and so you actually get to see more of the playing field than you would in your standard 4x3 aspect ratio. So it the, the same enemy patterns and things are there, but because you can see the screen wider, you see that stuff as it comes on screen sooner than you would in 4x3. So it actually gives you more of an advantage because you can you can deal with those things more quickly and also have a little bit more time to react. Not a ton, but again, with the wider screen ratio, you've got just that little edge of 
being able to see stuff as it's coming your way so that you can react to it and hopefully have a leg up. And that's what I found. What do you think uh, is our types legacy? I mean, I see this profoundly influencing the shooter and the shooter genres that would go through until uh, probably in mid to or early 2000s on there. This, this is one of those games that I would recommend to almost anybody that they at least try so they can get an idea of where it came from this and Gradius. Is there, what would you, your thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's a, there's an old expression that you can use that uh, sums up our type quite a bit. Always duplicated or always imitated, never duplicated or something along those lines. Um, there are a lot of games over the years that took inspiration from our type, but I don't think that other than IREM with their own games ever quite captured lightning in a bottle like that again. Uh, you know, there have been a few notable games to kind of mimic the R-Type formula over the years. You had uh, um, Last Resort on the Neo Geo, which I want to say at least some of the team that worked on the original R-Type and possibly R-Type 2 were actually uh, with SNK at that time. And uh, so that is a good signifier as to why that game has kind of a visual style and um, play style that doesn't quite mimic R-Type, but kind of evokes that, that uh, feel. Uh, and then you also have, additionally on the Neo Geo, both Polestar and Blazing Star that have elements of R-Type. Again, they don't quite duplicate it. Um, and then later on the Dreamcast, um, by the HueCast team, you had Ducks and then Redux, which take a fair bit of inspiration from R-Type, but again, it doesn't quite duplicate that experience. So R-Type really, really does kind of its own thing, and, and no one has ever quite been able to to take that force pod mechanic and and really tweak it or change it in any way that makes it better than what IREM already did. And honestly, I don't think any other shooter game that I'm familiar with has even implemented a a mechanic like that, uh, at least not at that level. Yeah, it's really, really well done for something so early in the shooter genre's life cycle. I mean, Gradius had just come out in 85, and before that, we had stuff such as Scramble or dealing with... Stuff, other stuff from Namco, Galaga and Galaxian. It's just amazing to see the jump that two years makes. Or, you know, even going back to Galaga there, we've got about uh, six years. But, I mean, even from two years from Gradius, just to this is just impressive that they were able to pull this off. Yeah. One of the things I found sort of interesting, and I think it's just due to limitations of the hardware, is... If you look at the actual arcade cabinet for this, this is all published by Nintendo. It's using a Nintendo monitor, Nintendo parts, but yet the home console version appeared on the Sega Master System. No, that's right. I'm assuming... So I, I do, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm assuming that's just because IREM had not established a, um, an office in the United States at that point, being a Japanese company. Uh, and they were just using Nintendo to publish the games, much like, um, you know, Namco, before they established a U.S. branch, they published some of their games through Atari or through Midway and other places. So that was probably just a, just a distribution 
and publishing deal that IRAM struck with Nintendo during the 80s, which is very interesting. It very well could be. That's a good theory. I like it. Um, one thing I also wanted to touch on was the music. I, I wish I could remember where the interview was. I think it might have been something that was translated on schmopulations.com. But I was reading something. There was an interview with the uh, original composer for the game. And he mentioned when he did the soundtrack for it that if you, if you notice listening to the original arcade version of the soundtrack... There is no percussion in any of the tracks. And he said something in the interview as to why that was. Either he couldn't figure out how to do it with the sound engine that they were using, or he felt like it wouldn't make sense within the context of the game because everything was so alien. As I said, I should have pulled up the interview, but uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. That it, After I read that, I went back and as I was playing through the game, I noticed that, indeed, there's no percussion in any of the any of the tracks, and so then later going and playing R-Type Dimensions on PlayStation 3, they flesh out the soundtrack a little bit more, and there is some percussive elements added to the remixed soundtrack in that version, but in any of the chiptune versions, as far as I'm aware, there's no percussion. Did you? Was there any in the PC Engine CD version? Not that I can think of. I'm going to have to go back and give another listen just to make sure. Now, the CD version, who knows on that one, but as far as the chiptune ones, I don't remember. Yeah, I just thought that was an interesting an interesting element, especially because as you listen to the music in the game, it, it's, it's all very interesting. Um, of course, the first stage theme is iconic with that uh, sort of arpeggio coming in to the beginning of the level, but... All of the levels have kind of an interesting vibe to them, and it's this weird combination of eerie and ominous, but not overbearing, because you don't have the percussion, you don't have a deep bass element like some later arcade games would would utilize, and so it's all very trebly and high frequency, uh, and so it does. In a way, it does sound somewhat alien, which I think really is a strength and works to the game's favor. There's one one thing I'll say about the soundtrack is I hadn't heard it before playing this game, but since then, it's it's just one of those things that I'll be sitting there thinking about something, all of a sudden it'll get stuck in my head. It definitely sticks with you even after the game is being done played. Yeah, the first two or three levels especially, I uh, I have uh, on repeat in my head <laughs> quite a bit. Well, I'm certain that's in no small part due to the repetition that you need to master this game. Absolutely. Now, did you have a chance to play the arcade original? Um, No, I never did. Um, I know in years past I messed around with it a little bit on MAME, but mm-hmm. my the bulk of my time with our type for the playthrough was spent on the original Game Boy version, the PlayStation R-Types compilation, and then R-Type Dimensions. I've had R-Type Dimensions for a long time, and I've spent quite a bit of time with it over the years, and I actually bought R-Type DX for the Game Boy Color as a new release when I got my Game Boy Color. Uh, it was one of the first three or four games that I bought, and I still have my complete-in-box version here 
I'm actually holding it um, as we speak, and um, so very glad to have held on to that all these years and uh, put a little bit of time into that toward the end of the, the month as we were going through the game. If you were to give somebody a recommendation, let's say someone says, hey, I really like R-Type, it sounds like it's a great game, what version would you tell them? You want to go with the Game Boy Color version? Would you steer them towards the R-Types on the PlayStation? What would be your recommendation? Hmm. I guess it would say maybe a multi-part recommendation. The Game Boy Color version uh, is a good go-to if you're looking for something a little bit more casual because it is easier. As I said, you know, I was able to learn the stages and complete the game within two credits. Um... R-Type DX on the Game Boy Color also has R-Type 2, which we didn't get in North America. Uh, it only came out in Europe and Japan uh, on the Game Boy. And so you get that version, and it comes with both the original Game Boy ports of R-Type 1 and 2, the colorized versions for the Game Boy Color, which are slightly tweaked and have uh, slightly improved audio. And then there's the R-Type DX itself, which sort of combines the two games into uh, kind of a long onslaught. And so there's a lot of bang for the buck with that. And uh, I was looking the other day on price charting, and this is still fairly reasonable. As of the time of this recording, it was showing $12 loose and just over $25 for a complete copy. Um, So this one is easy enough to come by and inexpensive enough that it's easy to recommend. The other version that I would recommend, of course, would be R-Types for the PlayStation, uh, just because it's uh, near arcade-perfect or arcade-perfect ports of R-Type 1 and 2. But in all honesty, you kind of get that with R-Type Dimensions, which is out on both the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360, Plus, you get all the added features of the Dimensions version, which is the ability to play in 16 by 9 with really uh, nice HD graphics, and it really looks great. The Remix soundtrack, and then the ability to, on the fly, change between the two. Um, So, on the PlayStation 3, for example, when you're playing the game, if you hit the triangle button while you're playing, it will sort of morph from 16 by 9 pretty HD graphics to 4 by 3 and original graphics and chiptune music. And so it's an awesome feature. Plus there's there's an infinite mode which allows you to essentially play the game with infinite lives. And if I remember correctly, I only messed around with it for a little bit, but if I remember correctly, instead of going back to checkpoints when you die, you just respawn immediately which presents its own set of challenges, as we discussed, since the checkpoints are so well designed. But it does give you the ability to kind of see through a level to the end, get a better idea of the flow, etc. And then that version also gives you a stage select um, at the beginning. I know you can do that in the PlayStation version. There is a, yes. sta- a stage select, but it's uh, it's actually really nice in the PS3 or the the HD version where you see these little hexagons that show kind of a preview of what the stage looks like and you can go through and you can pick which stage you want to start with. Of course you start with no power-ups but that allows you to learn the layout, the enemy flow, the power-up 
sequence and all that stuff for each of these levels so that you can get a better idea of what it is. So, for example, when I was playing through on Dimensions, I because I had mastered stages one through three to the point where I could almost every time get through without losing a life and reaching stage four with full power-ups, I would go back and use that feature to start stage four immediately so I could start learning it from no power-ups and use that as a means of trying to really intensify my own practice and uh, get to know the levels better. That's exactly what I did with the R-Types on the PlayStation. Just start was able to start it up with stage three, got better and better with it, and then switched to stage four, and eventually made it to stage five, where that's as far as I was able to make it. But the ability to start on a specific stage and keep practicing, practicing, because as we mentioned before, this is a game about memorizing and finding the best path in order to make it through. Yeah. I want to say I was able to reach stage seven at least once on Dimensions. Uh, And of course, once you reach that point and you save your progress, then you can access that from the beginning. But since I had so much trouble with stage four and stage five, I spent the bulk of my time actually working on those two stages to try and get to where I could consistently reach the end stage boss in stage four and then consistently reach the end stage boss in stage five. And so I didn't spend a lot of time on six or even seven outside of the Game Boy port, which of course um, stages six, seven, and eight on the Game Boy version become uh, four, five, and six, or excuse me, stages six, seven, and eight in the arcade original become four, five, and six on the Game Boy version. Um, And so in absence of the, the regular stage four, stage six with those kind of indestructible moving vertical platform things becomes the the default difficult stage in the Game Boy version because uh, there are some really memorization heavy spots and, and hazards there that are a little bit more difficult to avoid uh, especially because of the Game Boy's low resolution and everything as you said feels claustrophobic now, I after videos that you posted, some of those expert playthroughs, I started farming the worm in order to get a little bit more points in stage two. Is there anything that you were doing or to try and bring up your score? Yes, um, I did the same thing, and that that helps me remember. Um, I was farming the the body segments of the worm at the end of stage two, the same way that that you were doing because I watched X mosquitoes play through and saw that he was doing that, you gain a lot more points doing that than you do just beating the boss. And so if you can farm all those segments before you go in for the the kill, so to speak, with that uh, blue um, orb at the top of that heart boss, you will earn a lot of points. And if you can hit, I think it's 100,000 points, that's when you get an extend. So I want to say it's every 100,000 points is when you gain an extra life. And so I made sure to do that purposely so that I can try and hit or nearly hit 100,000 points to earn an extra life before going into stage three. I'm trying to think if there's some any other spots there. Stage five has stuff that you could sort of get a little bit into, especially if you're quick enough to get rid of the dragon or snake parts that pop out of there. 
if you're able to hit those, able to hit his head, and then able to get all those parts, you get through quickly enough. But those enemies that start tracking you later on the level make it a little bit difficult. Right. I noticed with the snakes that if you if you can destroy the the snake head in stage five, then as I mentioned earlier, the body will explode and kind of radiate, and the pieces will radiate out uh, in kind of a um, well radiating pattern. And so if you have the blue laser or the helix laser where you can fire quite a bit toward those body segments, you can take out several of them and, uh, you know, again, it's not quite point milking, but it gets close to that, or at least it gives you the ability to earn more points faster so that you can uh, get that much higher score and get that much closer to another extra life. So yeah, there there are a couple of spots like that where you can either point milk, like in the stage two boss, or just extra opportunities to earn points, like in stage five with those uh, those snakes. Now, going on to not really to point milking, but I wanted to talk a little bit about stage four on there. I know some people had some problems with that boss. I found it by putting the force orb or the force pod. On the back of the ship with the blue laser and just standing or staying in the bottom right hand corner i could get it to come to me and then detach itself where i could just fire at the back of it and take it out really really quickly did you have any other that same experience or do you have any other tips or recommendations that you'd like to make yeah i was actually trying to follow what x mosquito did in his playthrough which is to put the force pod on the back of the ship and as that um, boss was coming into the screen, kind of get up alongside the back of that boss as it's coming in and sort of inch your way forward, constantly firing uh, to damage the boss and then also being close enough to it so that the force pod is damaging the boss as well. Because then you can take out the bottom of the three segments fairly quickly and find that it's a lot less cramped and claustrophobic than to go and and um, either redock on the front and move around so that you can fire the force pod or do charge shots or whatever toward the blue jewel on the front of the top segment. Um, I think the, the top rear segment, I want to say. I'd have to look it up, but um, th- that gives you the ability to really have a lot less to deal with if you can destroy that that bottom piece much more quickly that way uh, and then doing it that way I found that I was able to kind of take the boss out and not get hit by a stray orange bullet uh, nearly as often now going forward on here do you have plans for introducing any of the other art part of the other R type series into future playthroughs is this something that you like to continue on or we want to do with R types R types Delta or maybe R types final Yes, uh, I would absolutely love to go through the rest of the series at some point. Obviously, there's a lot of shoot 'em ups, and so we want to space them out somewhat. R Type 2, for me, is the game that affected me more, because um, as I mentioned before, I never found or saw an R Type cabinet in arcades growing up, but my local bowling alley where I lived had an R Type 2 cabinet for quite some time, and so I pumped a lot of quarters into that machine. And despite how difficult it is and how frustrating it was, I kept going back. 
And when I bought R-Types for the PlayStation and R-Type DX on the Game Boy Color, that was the one I focused on more was R-Type 2 because that was the one that I that I knew um, more specifically. And so that game is really the, the one that I have so much more um, nostalgia for and so much more experience with. Um, as far as Delta and Final, Final I really, really enjoy. A lot of people don't like it as much because they don't feel it's as tight as Delta. Delta is a really good game and is arguably the high watermark of the series. I you definitely know. agree on there. I just picked it up about a couple of months ago. I was able to find the Japanese version at a very good price. And wow. just playing in for a couple of minutes, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic game. Uh, Final has some flaws. Um, I like the ambient soundtrack of it, even though it's very nondescript. But I think it, the ambiance fits the game well. Um, and I, I also like the, the fact that with R-Type Final, the gameplay changes up somewhat depending on which ship you use. And because there are either 99 or 100 different craft that you can unlock, some of which become not necessarily carbon copies, but very similar to other ships, you know, you can unlock the original R9 and use its weapon set. And there are other cool ships that you can unlock that have awesome charge weapons or interesting weapon sets that you can use with the force pod. So it really, it really opens up a lot of different um, things with the gameplay and branching paths and, and different things that you can, can do. So I would definitely like to go through the rest of the series at some point. Two and final, because I've spent a lot of time with those, and, and uh, it'll be fun to go back to them. But Delta, especially, uh, in many ways, because I haven't spent as much time with it, and I hit a wall, I want to say four or five stages in, and um, never progressed past that. And so I would definitely like to have the opportunity to go back to Delta again and really give it a, a good try in terms of of really trying to to get through the rest of the game what are your final thoughts here on our type and your playthrough i know that you had definitely had a good time with it as did i here and i definitely discovered that parts of it that i really liked and parts i didn't like on there i i gotta say that stage five boss is just uh one of the hardest that i've i've personally come across and frustrating for me but it's a good type of frustrating i enjoyed the challenge and i'm looking forward to playing a little bit more in the series how about you yeah i, I i'm kind of right there with you i think the original r-type as important and influential as it is i'm always going to gravitate toward r-type 2 and the later games just because of of the improved graphics and sound and some of the quality of life improvements that were made the original is so memorization heavy in certain spots that that the frustration level can, for me, get to a point where it's too much. There were a couple of times, a couple of evenings as I was playing, that I kind of reached a boiling point and I was like, okay, I got to turn this off because I'm getting too upset. It's just a video game, you know, it's not that important. But, uh, you know, you get really invested in it. And so... For me, you know, I found I was getting invested in it, but I think this is one of those games that I will go back to from time to time in a more casual manner, especially now that I've got Dimensions on PS3 where I can kind of jump in 
uh, later in the game just to kind of pick back up and, and help relearn some of that area and see if I can make any progress. But in terms of making any serious attempts at a 1cc of the first loop, let alone reaching the second loop, I don't know if that's in the cards. Oh, hey, give it a shot. I'll be rooting for you. One of the things that I definitely find myself dealing with in shoot 'em ups is you can get yourself into a, the zone or almost... It's a little bit hard to describe, but anybody who's played pinball and has felt themselves become a little bit one with the machine, where outside obstacles start fading away, it's just you, the controller, and the machine, or you, the pinball machine, and control the flippers. That's the type of feeling that I get with shoot 'em ups that I don't normally find in your action games, your first-person shooters. It's something where you can sort of get into a little bit of a zen-like state. Yeah, Do you that, agree on this? To an extent, yes. Um, and I guess it depends on the type of game that you're playing and how you respond to those. There are people that I've spoken to and I've read online that for some people, the later shoot-em-ups, uh, Dan Maku or Bullet Hell type shoot-em-ups, have a very zen quality to them for some people because really you're not focusing on everything on the screen you're looking at these bullet patterns as they're coming towards you and you're figuring out how to bob and dodge and weave through them and uh, in, in similar fashion to our type what the pathway is that you need to take through that in order to navigate and to keep doing what you're doing and continue to progress and all of that for other people it's you know earlier shoot 'em ups with more twitch style gameplay fast bullets and and um, that kind of a thing that become more zen-like for people because, you know, you can just kind of move the joystick around or your D-pad or whatever and bob and weave and, and do all these things and, and really just kind of, as you say, get in the zone and just kind of get into that mindset where you are really focused on the action on screen, what your ship is doing, you know, the, the weapon that you're using and all of those elements. And so, yeah, it, it can become that kind of, you know, Zen is probably a, a bit hyperbolic, but yeah, it kind of can become that, uh, that experience where you just kind of shut out everything else that's around you and you really focus on that game. And a lot of, a lot of other games that deal with heavier story elements and things like that, you know, they, they try to immerse you into the experience shoot 'em ups don't have that and so w what they need to do instead is just make you so focused on the action on screen and what's going on that that is how you hone in on the game itself and get that immersion so that you can kind of shut out the world for a few minutes and focus on this thing and kind of escape the the rigors of real life and just have some fun blasting aliens and uh, and uh, firing, you know, insane laser cannons. All right. Sounds like fun to me. Speaking of firing insane laser cannons, blasting aliens, and grabbing power-ups, what's in store next? So as we record this, uh, we're already at the, toward the end of July, we've already been playing the July 2018 game, which as we have alluded to uh kind of low-key throughout the podcast is the original Gradius, uh, or Gradius. Um, 
I believe that came to the United States originally as Nemesis in the arcade, and then of course we got it on the NES as Gradius. We've been playing through that uh, on the NES. There's the Gradius collection on the PSP, which has Gradius 1 through 4, and the first uh, U.S. release or North American release of Gradius Gaiden, which was a Japanese original PlayStation exclusive. There's also the arcade archives port on PlayStation 4 that, from what I understand, gathers the revisions of the game that came out in Japan, North America, and Europe, which were all, I guess, slightly different. Uh, I haven't really dove into that version yet. I'm, I'm going to try and pick it up before the end of the month, uh, buy it digitally, so I can at least it's check it hamster. out. Hamster, yes. Yeah, hamster, um, right. Okay. And then, of course, for, uh, for Japan, um, in Japan only, on both the PlayStation and the Saturn, was the Gradius Deluxe Pack, um, which is similar to our types in that it's uh, arcade ports of the first two games in the series. Um, I'm fortunate enough to own the Saturn version, and since I've got a um, action replay cart that I can use to play imports on my Saturn, I've been wanting to tackle this, but my my time has been split between playing the NES version in the evenings, and then I take my PSP to work and have been playing the original Gradius on PSP over lunch breaks and stuff, and uh, so that'll be interesting to talk about uh, as well. <clears throat> um, so by the time this podcast gets released, there won't be a way to uh, join in with that, but of course, I would encourage anyone to play Gradius, uh, because as we mentioned, it's one of the early examples of the genre, and uh, definitely a highly influential and groundbreaking shoot 'em up in its own right. What we've got set for August 2018 is, instead of going with something that is an innovator in the genre and something that is a classic that we want to look at and dissect, we're going to go with something relatively new, which is Raiden 5. Um, this was your suggestion, and it's the it's the fifth canonical release in the proper Raiden series, uh, which of course has seen the Raiden Fighters spinoff series as well. But uh, it's relatively recent, and came out on PlayStation 4 uh, and uh, Xbox One. Um, and Steam, I believe. And Steam, yeah. Now, the here in North America, we got a physical release of the game on PS4, and it is the director's cut. Uh, I've got it here in my hands. It does come with a soundtrack CD as well. There is a physical release for the Xbox One, but that was only released in uh, Japan and Asian reason, regions. Um, but of course, the Xbox One is region-free, so you can import that if you want to go physical. Otherwise, it's available digitally, and then of course on Steam as well. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to cracking open the seal on my copy and giving that a shot. I've been had that since January. I need to try it out. Yeah, I picked up mine. Gosh, it was last year. Uh, it was one of the first PS4 games that I bought, and uh, I didn't even own a PS4 at that time. Um, in fact, I didn't even I didn't even purchase my PS3 until uh, I want to say March or excuse me, my, my PlayStation 4. I, I bought it in March, um, primarily because I wanted to start digging into a lot of the shoot-em-ups I've bought for the system, but also to join in with uh, 
the regular RF Generation playthrough, which was for Transformers Devastation, uh, because Zagnorch, who played with us this month um, on his Game Boy copy of, of R-Type, he had hooked me up with a copy of that uh, last year, and so I bought the PS4 to play that, and then uh, after I <clears throat> finished that in March, I put some time into both Raiden 5 and also Darius Burst Chronicle Saviors, um, which I'd like to, to uh, include at some point in the future. Sounds great. Where can, if somebody wants to get involved in this, where can they reach us at? Um, well, first and foremost, I would say go to rfgeneration.com, go into the forums. There's a community playthrough section, and that's where you can find the threads for the regular playthrough that that uh, Grey Ghost 81 and Single Banana Run. And then also there will be threads for the current shmup and uh, previous shmups that we've been covering. Um, and of course the the month, year, and the name of the game will be in the thread title, so you'll be able to easily find whatever the current game is. As, as well far as, as offer suggestions, right? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Offering suggestions for future games. Like, for example, I put up a poll after after choosing R-Type for the first month and then Gradius for the second month. I put up a poll before we chose Raiden 5 to find out what kind of game people wanted to play. Uh, you know, horizontal shooter, vertical shooter, uh, non-traditional, you know, uh, hybrid, you know, those kinds of things. And so the people who voted all wanted to play a vertical shooter this time. And uh, since you suggested Raiden 5, I thought, yeah, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, you know, go from playing old games to something new. And so that's what we went with this time. So yeah, rfgeneration.com, definitely go and, and sign up for the forums and, and come join us for a future playthrough. Um, as far as myself, uh, I am MetalFro on the forums. You can find me there. You can follow me on Twitter at GameBoyGuru as well to talk anything gaming. And um, that links to my personal account, I'll say. So if you want to talk other topics other than gaming, you know, follow me on that as well. What about you? I am addicted on the forums, and uh, I do not have anything. I don't have a Twitter handle nor anything like that at the moment. Maybe okay. a little bit later, but for right now, you can reach me or PM me as addicted on the rfgeneration.com forums. Okay. Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Well, I want to say thank you for giving me an excuse to finally try out this great game, and I hope everyone else had fun, and please come join us for the next one. Sounds great. Thank you all so much for listening and for uh, joining in the the first RF Generation Shmup Club playthrough with us, and make sure that you come back next month and check out the next episode, and make sure you go check out whatever the current game is on rfgeneration.com. Thanks again. Thank you.